Welcome to The Q Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about but seldom talk about. You found the Q Word Podcast. Lisa, I'm so excited about this great conversation that I had with one of my mentors, Rebecca Cogburn. Oh, I can't wait to hear about it. But I think we should just go ahead and share it with our listeners. Yes, they're going to love it. Okay, let's go. Keyword listeners, we are on site at the brand new Pediatric Emergency Center. It's what, three or four months old? Yes. Four months old. Four months old. Uh, My home hospital has just decided to break out the pediatric emergency room and separate it from the adult emergency room. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And I'm here with the PEDS ER director, who also is the director of the pediatric intensive care unit, the pediatric intermediate care unit, the pediatric transport team. Uh, What else? The palliative care team. Are you still schoolhouse nurses also? Wow. Um, And then now newly the pediatric emergency room. You started off your career in the emergency room as an emergency nurse. That's correct. Carry your certified emergency nursing uh, certification still to this day, along with your certification in pediatric critical care nursing. You went to PACU, adult critical care, neonatal intensive care, and then uh, back to the emergency room several times and then settled in the pediatric world, both emergency and critical care. You have also had a lot of professional influences here at this hospital and in the pediatric community in this uh, area. Some important notable ones were of creating a bereavement camp for children and siblings who have lost a, a brother or sister or child called Bose Camp. You've been involved in the magnet committee here. The clinical ladder is very important to you. You developed a child abuse education program. And then as far as your awards go, they are many and lengthy, but I love that you are a superhero award, that you are a hospital hero, a finalist for the Georgia Nurse of the Year, um, and a lot of managerial awards as well. So you guys welcome my good friend and mentor, Rebecca Cogborn. Thank you, it's great to be here. Thanks for agreeing to um, give us some of your precious time. We are really excited to talk about a population that in the last year of the podcast we have not covered very much, just little, a little bit here or there, and that is the pediatric emergent patient. So to start off, I would like to know, do you ever say the Q word on shift? If it's really, really quiet, and it's been that way for a day or two, I will say it to jinx us, yes. <laughs> to bring on <laughs> Intentional. The... <laughs> I see, so you don't and, like to be. And I am cursed greatly when I do. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't like to sit still, and so you no. like to bring it no. on. Very good. And the Q word is prevalent, not just in emergency nursing, but in the inpatient side, too, because you are not allowed to say it in critical care either. That's right. It crosses many uh, disciplines. One of my favorite um, educations that you do for new nurses um, in the emergency department, and I think for your new nurses in the other, other departments as well, is pediatric early warning signs and pediatric red flags. And so for our listeners, we asked you to come and, and tell us what would be those top red flags and those top 
warning signs, maybe specifically for a nurse who takes care of peds intermittently, maybe that's not their specific, uh, maybe they're not in a pediatric specialty, pediatric ER, so they take care of, of kids here or there in a mixed ER. Before we get into those early warning signs, tell me the benefits of having a dedicated pediatric ER uh, separated from an adult ER, and then if there are disadvantages of doing that, will you touch on that as well? The advantage is it allows emergency nurses to specialize in pediatrics. And um, you've heard me lecture many times on early warning signs. And one of the things I always say is kids are not small adults. And you really have to be real familiar with uh, pediatric anatomy and physiology because all of those things are so different and that plays into how you treat them and the decisions you make. And when you're used to seeing 80% of your patients are adults, you kind of forget that. And so then you would tend to treat them like small adults and you really can't do that. So the big advantage is it allows nurses to really specialize and learn all the little nuances and the subtle things that you need to know about when you're taking care of pediatric patients. Is there any disadvantage to having peds pulled separated from adults? Uh, I can't really think of any off the top of my head. Uh, one of the big things when they developed the Beverly Knight Olson Children's Hospital for this organization, um, pediatric care is very fragmented. So if you needed a CT scan, you went here. If you needed OR, you went to the main hospital. Um, so when they built um, the tower, all of our pediatric services are under one place. So a pediatric patient doesn't have to go into the adult world to get care. So they have their OR, we have our own OR, own CT scans, all that is pediatric specialized. So that just makes it safer for the child. Very good. Uh, one of the things that you start off your education when you talk about the early warning signs, you always talk about the four populations that deserve a head-to-toe assessment naked. There, there are a small group of people, uh, and it is a good portion of what you take care of in the emergency room. And people tend to focus on the obvious and treat that. I call it the focused ER assessment. But I tell everyone, if you're working in the emergency room, there are four groups of patients that should, that deserve your um, head-to-toe assessment. You should look, listen, feel every part of their body, and they should be naked. And that is drunks. Trauma patients, the very old and the very young, um, because those are the patients that really depend on you to have very, very astute assessment skills and, uh, and make sure you're looking at every little detail of their body. And in many cases, those four populations can't tell you for various reasons. They either can't or won't mm -hmm. That's um, right. tell you what's going on. That's right. Um, and so what is this about children are well and then they're dead? This is a huge difference in the pediatric versus adult population. Well, that's the, um, why it's so important for nurses to know the anatomy and physiology. Children have a very small reserve. Uh, so children will go and go and go, and then they just kill over um, because they've lost their reserve. And you, you will see 99 children who are perfectly well in the ER who are going to be seeing discharge and go home. You know, most ERs are going to admit less than 10% of their patients. So that's a very small population that's going to be really ill. But it's that one child that is going to walk in. They were in school, woke up normal this morning. Everything's fine. 
and we don't know just how sick they are and then by the time they get to us they're they're extremely ill or we miss it and they're extremely ill and they die so children are healthy in the morning and dead at night uh, so for me, I'm an old ER nurse and ICU nurse. I think they're all going to die until I've prove, proven that they're not. And so you teach to always go back for a second glance and reassess, reassess, reassess. Always go back for a second look. You're going to assess them, and, and there may be something that wasn't there the first time. In a trauma patient, there may be a, or an abuse case. There may be a bruise that wasn't there the first time, but now it's there. In an illness, an acute illness, there may be a rash that's there now that wasn't there. Um, I've told the story, a case study of a child that walked into the ER, walked in, mom described flu-like symptoms, low-grade temp, uh, undressed her to put her in a gown because you should undress them all. And within 20 minutes, she was unconscious. We were um, coding her and she was covered and petechial and pupural rash from an overwhelming meningococcemia. Um, so always go back and look a second time because um, just to confirm what you're seeing, number one, and number two, to make sure something else hasn't come up. So these are the case studies that you're telling me. This, these are the kind of things that terrify some nurses yes. about, or caregivers in general, physicians, patient mm -hmm. care techs, everyone, about caring for kids is mm -hmm. because you know, they can lull you into the sense of, oh, baby's fine or little mm -hmm. Johnny's fine, and then they're not. Correct. So I think that's why people are, are terrified of them. And one of the things, too, I've seen over the years is a lot of these children that are well in the morning and then dead later on, a good portion of those have a history of having been seen in the mm -hmm. ER a day or two before or by the primary care doctor a day or two before. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a red flag. If a child's been seen by another caregiver within that week and they're not better, even though they look good, that's a red flag. Should, mm -hmm. Do we need to look further into this and not just wash over this just a kid with a snotty nose? Mm -hmm. And I remember you also teaching me that if a caregiver, a parent or grandma or whoever brings a kid in in the middle of the night when everyone's supposed mm -hmm. to be asleep, Correct. even if it looks like things are okay, there's a reason why ma mama and baby are up and coming into the ER in the middle of the night. Just that fact should be a red flag. Right. That, correct. That should really make you look deeper. Uh, there's nothing really stronger than a mom's gut, and I know as an old ER nurse it's easy to say, oh, this is new mom syndrome, or they didn't do what we told them to do, or they didn't do what the primary care physician told them to do, but up in the middle of the night when everybody else is asleep, that's a red flag. They, there's something going on. It may just be that mom's gut telling her something's not right. Mm -hmm. And that's enough for us to mm -hmm. warrant an exam. What about, speaking of this mom, what about this idea that there's always a second patient? The idea that there's always a second patient is, is you always have to treat the family. You can't just treat, assess and treat the child without also assessing and treating the family because it may be something going on in that family that's, that could harm the child. Uh, you have to look at the, the child in the context of the family unit. You know, you may have a parent with mental illness that can't meet the child's physical needs, uh, especially in children with, with chronic medical conditions like diabetes or asthma or, or just cerebral palsy, and they have limited um, uh, cognitive 
cognitive capacity to care for themselves or to speak out. So you always have to look at the child in conjunction with the family unit and assess that so that you can make sure the kid's getting what they need. Mm -hmm. In the family dynamic. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. good. And caregiver strain is yes. super, super yes. real. So got, just kind of going head to toe, the first thing that we uh, hit on is respiratory. And for kids, uh, it's very different than adults. You see a lot more respiratory with kids, and respiratory kills kids a lot more than it does in the adult population. In adults, we see a lot of strokes, we see a lot of heart attacks, but with kids, it's all about the breathing. Well, one of the things, the reason respiratory kills more kids is because one of the leading things that is going to lead a parent to bring a child to the emergency room is respiratory. But respiratory distress isn't always respiratory stress. It could be mimicking another illness. So we always have to rule out, is it metabolic? DKA, kids with new onset diabetic, are most often brought to the ER for respiratory distress. Uh, is it a cardiac condition? You know, it may be an undiagnosed cardiac condition um, that no one's checked into or is just now coming the full circle. Uh, GI stuff. Uh, the belly, the diaphragm is the primary muscle for respirations in kids less than four years of age. So they get any abdominal distension at all, it can impede respiratory function. So respiratory is the most common thing that they're gonna come to the emergency room for, but we always have to say, okay, is it truly respiratory? Is it cardiac? Is it metabolic? Is it neurological? Brain tumors are gonna present with weird respiratory patterns. Is it something else physiological going on? We can't just say that's part of that things aren't always as they seem kind of thing is they're tachypnic or they're having trouble breathing, but is that really what it is? We wanna make sure we rule out all those other things before we just treat them for a respiratory bug. Just being a primary children's hospital, we see children referred to us from smaller hospitals uh, where the parent brought the child in for respiratory distress. They've actually been in three times in the last two weeks. And the respiratory distress was due to new onset diabetes. So their DKA has actually been getting worse and worse mm -hmm. and worse. And the, the, the hospital's been giving them breathing treatments for the respiratory stress. Mm -hmm. So you always have to consider all the other um, differential diagnosis before you just settle on, yes, this is respiratory stress. Unless it's something obvious and you've got mm -hmm internal CO2 changes or O2 set changes or cyanosis or those kind of things. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Well, there's two things. One is cyanosis and grunting mm -hmm. are ominous signs of impending respiratory failure. Grunting is natural, your body trying to develop natural peak. Mm -hmm. So if a baby's grunting, uh, that's impending respiratory failure and you can't miss that. What ages are we talking about? Uh, less than 12 months of age okay. for grunting. With cyanosis, cyanosis is also an ominous sign of impending respiratory failure, especially less than four years of age. Because if you remember, uh, adults normal hemoglobin is going to be 14 to 15, a pediatric patient, a young child is going to be 9 to 10. So it takes four grams of deoxygenated hemoglobin to reflect cyanosis. So if I cyanotic. I still have about 10 grams of oxygenated hemoglobin floating around. If you're an infant and your hemoglobin is nine, you only have four grams. Mm -hmm. So, so that's that puts yeah. you at great risk for respiratory failure and 
uh, respiratory cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. So sinuses and grunting are ominous signs in pediatric patients. And the other thing, I, point I wanted to make was about in children with asthma and bronchiolitis, it's real important to look at their x-ray because the diaphragm normally is gonna be about at the eighth rib. And if they get that air trapping, then they're, oh. it's gonna push their um, diaphragm down to about the 10th rib. Oh. And that really impedes their respiratory function further. Wow. And another thing I know about pediatrics, um, it doesn't matter if it's a trauma or not, but the cap refill is a big thing to look mm -hmm. for, uh, one of the subtle signs, and then keeping them warm. We, after we get yeah. them naked, keeping them keep warm, them keeping warm. them warm, yeah. keeping them warm, because yeah. they don't want do to make sure themselves. you keep them warm, yes. Yeah. So respiratory is not always about the lungs. Respiratory is like not it. always about the lungs. It can't be the symptom that brings them to the hospital, but doesn't necessarily mean it's a respiratory distress. So uh, an experienced or um, on-point pediatric nurse would use that as the starting point, but dig deeper into Correct. many other things, many other body systems, and not get caught up on it just being right. lungs. I like that. Well, that's part of that. You see this, but you always have to ask yourself, is this really what I'm seeing? Always second guess what you're seeing and prove it. Mm -hmm. Prove it to yourself. Ask those questions. I tell staff that um, assessing and caring for a pediatric patient is the best exercise in critical thinking because you've got to assess everything. You have to look at every single detail because every detail matters and they're all connected in some way and they all fit together in a puzzle. So if you're the nurse assessing that pediatric patient, then it's your responsibility to do that. Mm -hmm. You gotta look at every little piece of it and put it all together. So um, what, what is different about the cardiac child versus a cardiac adult? What kind of things would you be looking at differently in a child? Well, some of the things with uh, pediatric patients and cardiac issues is people who primarily work with a adults tend to miss it and get it confused because with a child a heart rate of 150 and a 10 month old we're not really concerned about it but if you work with adults you might think that's tachycardic and you might be treating the overkill throwing boluses at it and doing different treatment giving drugs you might not need to give so that's confusing you have to know the age range of the child so we're not going to really get worried about an infant with a heart rate of 220 until it gets over 220, 230, whereas an adult, um, you're going to treat that very differently. Mm -hmm. um, adults, you tend to um, go by a lot of systolic pressures. You're worried about, is your systolic this? Children, we're going to look at the, we'll look at the whole blood pressure, but we're also going to look at the mean, because the, the mean, we want to know where that is. One of the things that's really important with pediatric patients um, to keep in mind, and we miss this in shock sometimes, a warm shock, um, your adult blood pressure is going to be a little bit higher. Um, but with pediatric patients, of course, it's going to be a little bit lower. But the reason that can be clinically more significant in pediatric patients, if you've got a patient that's severely compromised, your coronary arteries are perfused during diastole. Mm -hmm. So if your diastolic pressure is trending down and you're missing that, they can make it to that point of extremis um, and be on that slippery slope a lot sooner. So you have to watch all those numbers. You can't just look at the systolic pressure. You have to look at the systolic, the diastolic and the mean to make sure you're not missing something. They don't get into um, 
pulse pressure as much with pediatric patients, adults, they may look at it, but pediatric patients, the main thing you, you want to look at the whole pressure, but in shock, you want to make sure you're watching that diastolic because you can have that point where you think you've corrected it and your systolic's coming up, but if, if you've got a septic shock, your diastolic may not be coming up with it. So you want to make sure you watch that because you could miss it. And if you back off on your treatment too soon, um, they could really get into trouble just because that diastolic stand in the coronary arteries aren't being perfused. So, and how do you figure a map with kids? Is it 65 or is it different for all age groups? Do you use as your guideline your mean? Uh, it's different for all age groups, and I can't really remember the formula. I just I look at a baby. <laughs> you just you know, know infants. You yeah, know we it. don't want it to be below 50 or 55. Bigger kids, we want it to be um, their map to be 65 to, to, to 70, 80 in there. But babies, we don't want it to get too much lower than 55. I remember in neonatal, it was uh, whatever their projected gestation was yeah. or something like yeah. that, the weeks that they would actually yeah. be. Um, what about uh, fluid resuscitation in kids? What's the difference when you're talking about um, the cardiac kids or when you're talking about hypovolemia or you're talking about some of those anemic children? Like how does fluid resuscitation differ than in adults? Well, kids, you know, with adults, you're just going to hang a liter of fluid and let it go in as fast as it can. And um, there's a couple of Different little things. If you read the textbooks, it's going to tell you 20 per kilo of, of some type of crystalloid fluid for volume resuscitation. Some of the things that we try to keep in mind with pediatric patients, though, is if you've got a newborn, of course, you're going to do 5 to 10 cc's per kilo. If you have a cardiac patient or a sickle cell patient, you really want to be careful with those. Those are the kids that can um, arrest on you while you're in the middle of trying to resuscitate them. So what we typically try to do with those kind of patients is um, a lot of lectures, they talk about filling the tank. If you've got a kid you're trying to resuscitate, they want you to fill the tank. Um, but with kids that have cardiac conditions or sickle cell patients who are septic, uh, we try to make the tank smaller. So you Whereas some kids, you might not hang a presser till you've done 60 per kilo of volume resuscitation. With cardiac kids and sickle cell kids, we might start that presser a little bit sooner um, so that we can make sure we've made our tank smaller mm -hmm. um, and not volume overload them too much. With sickle cell kids who are acutely ill, it's, it's just a fine line because if they're septic, you want to give them volume but you also don't know how anemic they are. And so if they have a hemoglobin of four or five and you give a couple, you give 60 per kilo, you could dilute them out and they could die on you. Um, so you, and you don't know that initially. So sickle cell and cardiac patients, we try to make the tank smaller, mm -hmm. so a little bit sooner than we would. So we'd hang a presser along with given that volume resuscitation. Is your presser of choice Levofed, or is it different for different? Uh, we usually use Epi. Epi with kids, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, yes, I knew that. Epi. Um, and so one of the big differences in pediatric resuscitations and pediatric medications in general is most things are weight-based. Correct. Everything is weight-based. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm noticing a trend in the adult population as well where things are moving more toward weight-based stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes it's ideal body weight, sometimes it's actual body weight, depending on what a medication you're talking about. 
What about with kids and our obesity epidemic in, in the United States? Are there some things that you guys divide out between ideal body weight of the kid versus actual body weight? Or do you go by height more? Or how do you? The general rules, everything's kilogram-based. Um, kilogram However, if they're morbidly obese and they're over 100 kilos, then we're going to go with the adult dosing sure. on those kids just because we don't want to overload them on stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but So for antibiotics and those kind of things, we would just use adult-based drugs. Do you see a lot of obesity in your kids? Yes. Though? And obesity-related mm-hmm. re- um, complaints? Obesity that we see is typically related to lifestyle. Um, mm-hmm. There are some kids that have uh, some uh, metabolic conditions or inherited conditions, but the majority of them is related to lifestyle. Right. Uh, you know, when I was raised, I'm much older. You can't see me, but I'm much older. <laughs> uh, you ate what was put on your plate, and you ate healthy. Mm-hmm. And now kids seem to have a diet of chicken nuggets and uh, macaroni and cheese and a Coke. And that's just not healthy. Mm -hmm. And that's led to, and the sedentary lifestyle uh, has led to uh, obesity. Mm -hmm. And that's very unfortunate. As a matter of fact, one of the things we're going to, a program that's starting here at the Children's Hospital in August, we'll do our first adolescent bariatric cases, bariatric surgery Surgery. cases. Um, So to me, it's really sad as a society that we even have to have that type program. Yeah. So that means someone has decided that the risks of this very, very serious surgery mm-hmm. outweigh, or the, I'm sorry, the benefits of this very, very serious mm-hmm. surgery outweigh the... Because the child is so morbidly obese yeah. and already developing those adult comorbidities that yeah. come with obesity. So the diabetes, the joint problems, mm-hmm. the, the floppy heart. Yes. Wow. Wow. Um, what about our neuro warning signs on kids? What would you say to look for in the pediatric neuro patient? The one of the things that people miss on pediatric neuro patients is seizures can be very subtle, whereas an adult you've got the you have the tonic clonic the full um, blown grand mal seizures. With pediatric patients, especially those less than eight years of age, uh, their seizures can be very subtle. It could be something is stiffening, like their arms get very stiff. They arch their head back. With infants, we see non-nutritive sucking. So they may just have a smacking. You try to put a pacifier in the mouth and it's really not that they want a pacifier or a bottle, it's that non-nutritive sucking. So seizure activity is very subtle and very different in pediatric patients. Uh, With the unconscious patient, the best assessment of neurostatus is how do they respond to pain and what do the pupils look like? Uh, So those are good little assessment um, things to look at. But um, the the different presentation of seizures is something that we see commonly in pediatric patients that we see missed. Yeah, that's one that's burned me before. I had a little baby who was doing some kind of a tongue lip smacking. Mm-hmm. It looked like she was blowing mm-hmm. kisses. We yeah. all thought it was adorable. Yeah. And the PICU nurse was immediately like, that's not adorable. That's a seizure. Yeah, that's how, and, and people will miss that. Yeah. And the other thing, too, that people don't think about, but it's very important to do, any child that has any altered level of consciousness, and especially if they're less than two and have a seizure, do a blood sugar. Mm-hmm. That should just be an immediate knee-jerk thing, do a blood sugar on them. Okay. 
And I was also taught probably by you that a baby who pulls out their NG tube or G button or whatever, if they haven't had it in for several hours, that's a blood sugar in triage immediately. Mm -hmm. Correct. Because that absolutely those feedings are children, especially less than 12 months of age. Um, they're dependent on eating to maintain their blood sugar and their volume. And if they have any cardiac condition, they can arrest two hours without it. So if a child hasn't had nutrition in 12 hours, it's real important to a blood sugar. Yeah. And we just had a child admitted to the unit the other day because they pulled out their uh, NG tube and mom was thinking, oh, I've already got a doctor's appointment this afternoon. I'll just take them. When they got there, the child's blood sugar was 28. Mm -hmm. So less than 12 months of age, if they've not had any nutrition um, in 12 hours or so, then they're at great risk for hypoglycemia. Mm -hmm. Another thing I remember and I think is um, key in neuroassessment of kids, what you were talking about is knowing those different ages and stages and developmental things that are appropriate. I remember a trauma patient coming in, she was like 15 months old, and she was in a papoose-type backboard, mm -hmm. and she was rolling into the trauma bay with all these lights and all these strangers that are not her family members coming at her with needles, and she was just laying there sweetly. And I remember the resident saying she has a GCS of 15, and I was like, no 15-month-old I know would ever behave like this mm -hmm. with a normal neurostatus. She should be kicking and screaming and fighting us and she's quiet, and I don't love that. Altered mental status, changes in, all, in their mental status is one of the first signs you'll see that something neurologically is going on with them. And if you take care of pediatric patients, it's very important to just commit to memory some growth and development milestones. Nobody expects you to be a growth and development expert, but you should know some milestones, like a baby rolls over at three months of age. So if they tell you the one month old rolled off the couch or the bed, you know that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, infants start pulling up and setting up at about six months of age. They start trying to crawl at eight months. They're walking between between eight months and 18 months. So just some developmental milestones are important to know so that you can see, does this story match what I'm seeing? Is this child developmentally appropriate? By two years of age, they should be saying about 25 to 50 words. They should say two to three word sentences. If they're not, are they, is this child developmentally delayed? Do they have a hearing loss or is what's going on with them? So you should be able to commit a few developmental milestones to memory. And what you'll also see with children with neuromuscular diseases like muscular dystrophy, or spinal muscular atrophy, they'll reach these developmental milestones and then they'll lose them. So knowing those sort of quick and dirty things in the first two years of life is very important. Yeah, those would be good, good heads up. Um, what about for the skin? What kind of skin things would you be looking at in a pediatric patient that might be the same or different as adults? Uh, you should look for scars. Uh, one of the things that you, especially little boys, you expect them to have all kind of bruises and scars on their front because they run and they fall into things. If you see lots of scars and bruising on the backside, children don't get those from normal play. So looking at scars, wounds, those sorts of things, where are they? Um, that's real important to know because all that on the backside can be reflective. Doesn't mean it's abuse, but it's very likely that it's from abuse. Uh, hair loss, uh, lice, um, children uh, as a coping mechanism when they're in very abusive situations will pull their hair out. So pulling their hair out, um, those things are important to, to notice. 
Uh, it could be an autoimmune disorder, but it also could be as a result of a stressful situation. And lice, is that scabies, those kind of things, those are important to look at. And then any rash, a rash with a fever is a medical emergency. Mm -hmm. That kid should be isolated and, and get immediate treatment and evaluate, evaluation and treatment. So lice is a normal elementary school kid thing mm -hmm. to happen, but what about that? would be the thing that gives you the red flag when they are covered in it i don't know if you've ever seen a exam for lice with a woods light you turn the make the room dark put the woods light on and their head looks like a christmas tree uh, so it's not just one or two little bugs it's thousands of oh bugs crawling on them it's everywhere so that's been going on for a while mm -hmm. if it got to that point mm -hmm. so that makes you that's neglect possibly mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then you have to look at all the other children else you got to notify the health department the mm -hmm. school system those sorts of things so when it's when it looks like a christmas tree on their head with under woods light um, that's really a red flag that's not a normal elementary school that's right not a normal elementary school <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and then i also heard this little axiom tell me if you agree with it if they cruise they bruise so if yes. they're kind of cruising around, you expect it on their yep. shins, their knees, exactly. maybe even the forehead exactly. or the cheek, uh, but not, like you said, the back or mm -hmm. like the back of the arm or Correct. the belt, you know. Or in folds um, mm -hmm. in the mouth, you know, you can see abuse. They'll um, get bruising in the mouth or on the tongue from force feeding because they're crying and they cram the bottle in there. Wow. Yeah. That's really, that really does require a second look, mm -hmm. looking in the yes. mouth. So what kind of history questions are different for, for pediatric patients versus adults? Uh, for pediatric patients, if they're less than 12 months of age, it's very important to get the birth history. Because um, that's gonna let you know, have, normally they should be gaining a lot of weight. So it's gonna let you know, are they gaining weight? Failure to gain weight could mean that they need, or they need to be looked at for an undiagnosed cardiac condition, uh, HIV. It, when you're an infant, uh, you burn your calories by growing. You eat and you poop. You eat and you poop. So if you're also burning your calories to compensate for some undiagnosed medical condition, like a cardiac condition, like an illness, then you're not going to grow. And so you'll present a couple months later with failure to thrive because you may be eating, but your body's just burning the calories trying to compensate for that heart that's not beating right or something else that's going on. So. Um, failure to thrive in those first couple of months uh, lets us know we really need to look for a metabolic disorder, HIV, or cardiac disorder um, to look at that. So birth weight is very, very important. Also need to know the mom's history in the less than 12 months of age because if mom had a medical condition like diabetes or lupus, it could negatively affect the infant and it may not be seen at birth. Uh, the other thing that's important to find out in that first 12 months of life is, was did the mom have herpes? Because herpes encephalitis has a late onset, usually sometime between 6 and 12 months of life. And so that's real important to know. Other important things to know if you're working in the ER is about um, sleep patterns. And that may seem silly, that, and you may not want to ask that or wonder why, but we just mentioned obesity, but we also have an increased incidence of children with sleep apnea because kids have their tonsils now and their tonsils and adenoids get really big. They may have sleep apnea that's undiagnosed. 
So you want to ask, uh, do they wake up at night? Does the teacher tell you that they're falling asleep in class? Do they fall asleep at the table? Do they fall asleep while they're watching TV? And the reason that's important is because if you're going to sedate them for a procedure, they are at risk for having respiratory, severe respiratory compromise. So sleeping patterns, if you think you're going to sedate them, is, is very, very important to, to ask about. We mentioned um, losing your developmental milestones. If you've reached your developmental milestones and they lost them, that's important to ask about. Our, um, the other important things are, are their siblings in foster care? Because uh, does this mom have this child, but there are four other siblings who are in foster care? You want to know why they were taken away. Because a lot of times people will have children taken away and then they'll have more kids. Mm -hmm. um, so we always ask how many children do you have and, and um, do they live they? with you? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's important to, to know also. Uh, other important things to ask them is about how much treatment have they gotten for this child for this disease? Because I mentioned earlier, if you've been taking them to the doctor over and over and they're not getting better, that's a red flag. Mm -hmm because they may be an annoying parent, but it also may, may mean that they're just not getting better and the parent's gut is telling them, take them back, something's wrong, take them back, something's wrong. Mm -hmm. So th those are, are, are red flags. The other big red flag that always sticks out um, with me, and if you take an ENPC, this statistic is in there, and that is children who have, had, who have asthma and who have been in the ICU on the ventilator in the last 12 months have a 50% greater chance of sudden death. So wow. children with asthma, uh, that should be a big red flag, I, even if they've been admitted to the ICU, because now there's a lot of things that we do where we wouldn't have to intubate them. But if they've had to be on life support in the ICU in the last 12 months, that child's at risk for sudden death. Wow. What about the vaccination status now that we have a lot of people who are choosing under vaccination mm -hmm. or no vaccination? How do you guys handle that in like like in your waiting room? Do you have a place to segregate the under vaccinated or? We have a sick waiting room so we can separate children out and part of the admission assessment is, is inquiring about vaccina vaccination status. And we have masks out there. If a child presents with a rash, they're not vaccinated, we're gonna get them to isolation as quickly as possible. We've got the pictures of the measles mm -hmm. and stuff because there have been measles cases in Georgia. Mm -hmm. We've not had any in central Georgia, but there have been measles cases in Georgia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you've, um, you've got some other uh, interesting cases that you wanted to bring up about that kind of don't fit into any of these categories that are pediatric specific red uh, uh, red flags warning signs just one of the things that um, just to be mindful of is children with nausea and vomiting especially infants less than two years of age isn't always a GI bug so you want to make sure you don't miss things that are medical emergencies that could um, the child could die if we don't pick up on it in the emergency room and those conditions are intussusception and uh, malrotation or midgut volvulus, and we just want to make sure that we rule those out. So midgut volvulus, they typically have a bilious emesis along with just the, a lot of vomiting and pain. They're just in a lot of pain. 
we want to make sure we don't miss that. We picked up two in our ER in the last couple of months. The kids were rushed to surgery and did really well. So we just want to make sure we don't miss that. Are those kids of any ages that, that can have It's that? usually less than two, but they less could have two. it at almost any age. Okay. But, the, they, um, but it's typically less than two. More often in boys, but it could be girls, but more often in boys, and it's usually less than two, mostly less than a year of age. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing with innocentception is that twi- uh, telescoping of the bowel. Um, it can cause um, bowel damage and death. Um, if it's not picked up on um, very quickly, it's a surgical emergency. And those babies, we, our children will usually have like a current jelly, bloody type stool. And we just want to make sure we don't mistake those for a GI bug or call it a GI bug and send them out. And the other thing that gets missed sometimes is um, the torsion testicles. So mm-hmm. a, a boy with pain in his testicles, you know, a teenage boy or even a 10-year-old is not going to want to tell another female that he hurts in his testicles. So we want to make sure we ask really good questions, just point-blank questions about do your balls hurt? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if you lift them up uh, and it's relieved, um, then it's it's probably epididymitis. But if it's more painful, um, we're going to need to get an ultrasound and get them to the operating room within the hour. So those are things that get missed in some of the smaller ERs or ERs where kids are pushed in with the adults. And sometimes testicular um, torsion can mask, like you were saying, is epididymitis. In the, mm-hmm. in the little kid population, they like to play and they don't want to mm-hmm. stop to exactly. go and urinate, so they hold on to it. And that's mm-hmm. how they end up with an epididymitis, mm-hmm. where in the adults, it's often an STD-related kind right. of thing. With kids, it's holding your urine because you're too yeah. busy playing. Yeah. Um, and then tell me if you th- this is true or not, but I was told that the kids who have a true testicular torsion are usually puking their guts up just from the pain. and, and Not all, but I have seen that. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so don't use that as a yeah. as a differentiation. Yeah. He's not puking. So it's really the they need the ultrasound pretty emergently, mm-hmm. and then to the operating room. Cool. So how would you um, how would you kind of summarize the the assessment, the pediatric assessment? Uh, just I always tell everybody think outside the box. Some of what we, um, Nisa and I talked about is just pay attention to every every detail. Put all the pieces together. It's connected in some way. Uh, remember things are not always as they seem so don't get focused on one little thing and and miss some important details that are in your assessment remember that everything's connected in some way so that'll help you put the pieces together and if your gut tells you something's not right it's probably not right so go get someone else to look at it with you or run it by you because Um, There's nothing stronger, just like there's nothing stronger than the mom's gut, there's nothing nothing stronger than your gut as a nurse, too. So if something's not right, run it by someone else, whether it's a physician or another nurse. Um, And then always take that second look. Always go back and assess again, regardless of what's going on with them, just to make sure you didn't miss something or that something else hasn't developed since your last assessment. And and then um, always troubleshoot your patient first. I see people, we're so technology driven. I see people tend to uh, assess monitors and cables and probes, but you should always assess your patient first because your patient's where you're gonna, you you don't wanna miss something going wrong there. 
Um, and the example I always tell staff is the, when the pulse ox is going off and your patient's unconscious, it may be that you're losing your pulse. <laughs> so don't go get another probe first, check your pulse. So always troubleshoot your patient first, then troubleshoot your equipment. That's good. And then, so just as a psychosocial piece, when we talked about the parents, a lot of people who say they don't want to take care of kids, it's because of the families and because of the parents that are so frustrating or, like you said, kind of naggy or, um, or negligent or, frankly, mm-hmm. abusive. Um, and then there are other, the other school of thought that I hear is people say, you know, if, if anybody's going to bounce back from something bad, it's going to be a kid. So there's kind of like the two. How do you help new nurses deal with all those different various things that they're going to see and and maybe we're not aware of before they stepped into this how do you help them cope with abuse neglect um needy families or like you were saying parents that just don't have the the cognitive ability to take care of the sick kid how do you help them cope through that well one of the main things is don't take this stuff personal Uh, and i stress that to staff all the time because Parents are supposed to be large and in charge and in control and make everything better. And I always call the ER and the ICU a place of total surrender because you're not in charge, you're not in control. And sometimes we as nurses aren't even in charge and in control of it. We just gotta take care of the moment. So when a parent reacts, it's really reacting to that. Or guilt, sometimes, you know, guilt is a very strong emotion. So sometimes they're reacting to guilt because they didn't take them to the doctor sooner, or anger. So you can't take any of that personal. Um, We're here to take care of the child, and that's what we signed up for. And so sometimes there's a lot of junk that comes with it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's kind of like chatter out there. You you gotta know it's there, maybe address it later, but you take care of the child, and then we'll take care of the family and all their stuff. And, And, you know, that's just part of what we do, and I have no, and we have counselors, and then I do it a lot, talking with families about let's direct it, you know, let's let's do the right thing, let's all get on the same page. We're all here to take care of the child, and let's leave all the emotion out, and let's, you know, let's let's not attack the staff because you're angry. So, um, and it's just kind of helping the families work through it, but helping the staff work through it too. Very good. I like it. So now I kind of want to dive into that part where you're talking about your management style. You're a very successful manager, in my opinion. You have high-performing staff members under your leadership, and they are happy under your leadership. And so I wanted to kind of pick your brain about some of those things that you do as a manager. And so I asked a few of your staff members about you, how they would describe you and uh, your, your management style. And there were a couple of themes. Um, I talked to Karen and to Stephanie both, and they both said that you set very clear expectations. And then once those expectations are set, you trust your staff. You trust the leadership that's under you, and you trust the staff nurses. And then if there's some correcting to be done, but mostly you trust them. Uh, this idea of, of clear expectations came up multiple times. The other thing that, that came up is that you like to laugh with your staff, even sometimes when a mistake has been made or corrections are, are you know, being made, um, that you're doing it with a smile and that you like to laugh with them. And so you have this art, and I want to know how you do this, this art of being able to be one of them but the leader. Is that just magic and fairy dust? I think that's I think that's pixie dust. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really impressed they said those things, but that's really 
funny. But uh, that is the way I lead When I became a manager, I had to ask myself, okay, what are my expectations? So I defined my expectations. And then I said, well, I can't hold the staff to these expectations unless I share it with them. So I share my expectations. So every new employee that comes on gets the same spill. So you clearly know what I expect of you. Um, so I have defined expectations, but then I also learned as I grew as a leader is sometimes I have, I have to listen more than I talk. But uh, I have to be willing to compromise, and I, you have to find that balance. Okay, I can compromise, but I've also had the conversation where I've told staff who were complaining, I'm not going to lower my expectations to meet yours. So I hold true to my expectations, but it's not a brick wall. There may be times where we have to compromise based on circumstances, but I'm not going to lower them just because somebody's whiny-whiny and don't want to do good. So you figured out what things you're willing to give yeah. on and then those that are Correct. not negotiable. Right. And I noticed that you're one of the few managers that wear scrubs, that you are on the, There's, I guess there's a lot of mm -hmm. managers that wear scrubs, but you are on the floor, in scrubs. Do you still start IVs and white mm -hmm. butts? and Yeah, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> my, uh, my direct boss was in my office the other day and um, – about something important she had to go over with me and all of a sudden the door swings open it's the staff going we need you out here she goes well I guess I just got trumped <laughs> so yeah and I I never want to be a person that can't get my hands Do the dirty stuff yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and then I also remember you teaching me one time that when you have to call a staff member in, in and have one of those critical conversations with them where they made a mistake or something didn't go well, um, maybe even just a time and attendance issue or something like that. You, you have sort of a preamble that you give, and if I'm remembering <laughs> it correctly, it goes something like this where you say... I'm going to have to be careful of conversations with you. <laughs> yes, I know, because it makes impressions. No, I thought it was brilliant because you say something like, we're going to have this conversation and there's two ways it can go. You can either own it and learn from it and we move Correct. past it, or you can make excuses and blame everyone else. But either way you choose to go, I'm going to learn something about you in the next few minutes. And it's genius because it, uh, first of all, it sets a clear expectation mm -hmm. and it takes that weak safety net that some people will turn to when, you know, it's a, a coping mechanism where I'm, I'm going to point the blame at everything else instead of well it's it. not a coping mechanism it's the way you react Def defense you, mechanism you maybe it's, it's a lack of accountability mm -hmm. and that's one of my expectations I expect you to be accountable for your behavior but for your mistakes I mean and if I mean I have no problem if I mess up you come in and tell me I don't like the way you handle that and we can have a conversation about it but when you mess up you made the third drug era in a month and we're having a conversation or we've had a conversation about your time and attendance and you're late and you're late and you're late. My expectation is that you are accountable for that. You own what you own, look at it introspectively and say, okay, this is what I own in it and what I can fix and correct to make sure it doesn't happen again. And the rest of it, that's just, I can't help that. I can't do anything about that. So own what you own, shake off the rest. And then we never have that conversation again. But if you are the employee that says, but Nisa did this, and she did this, and she did that. If you start immediately 
telling me what everybody else did, then that's my clear message. You're not going to be accountable for it. And then guess what? We're going to have these conversations again because mm -hmm. you're not going to be accountable for it and you're not going to correct that behavior. Mm -hmm. So um, that's sort of the, the dialogue I have with people is I'm going to know whether you're going to take action to correct this or are you going to tell me about what everybody else did? And the person that's going to be accountable also fixes it, corrects it, and we never have that conversation again. Mm -hmm. And they may go tell people, boy, I messed up. Let me tell you what I did. Don't ever do this. Or the person that says, well, Nisa did this and so-and-so did this and so-and-so did it. They're also the person that goes out into the department and says, you're not going to believe mm -hmm. what she said. You're not going to believe what she accused me of. And she was so mean and she hollered at me. And blah, blah, blah. and then they're the person that never corrects it. And then we have a second conversation. Mm -hmm. We have a third conversation. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's clearly you're one way or the other. Mm -hmm. So when you are looking to hire someone, when you're looking in an interview or you're looking at a candidate, maybe someone that's been an extern for you, what kind of things are you looking at? I don't want to tell my secrets. Oh, oh. <laughs> All right, can you just give us one thing that you look for? For critical care in ER, I'm looking for someone, and, and some people don't agree with me on this, but this is purely me. I'm looking for someone that's poised in the interview because if you're going to be an ER nurse or you're going to be an ICU nurse, you got to handle stress. So if you're sitting in the interview and you're crying and shaking and trembling, then I'm probably not going to move past that because then I'm going to wonder how are you going to do in a code situation? How are you going to do when everything's going perfectly and then all of a sudden your patient seizes on you or quits breathing or becomes unconscious? Because you got to be able to handle that and think quick. And if you can't think through questions in an interview, mm -hmm. then that worries me. Um, so... You know, I, that's just me when I'm interviewing and I'm looking. That's one of the things I look for when I'm interviewing because you're interviewing for a high-stress situation in either ER or ICU, and you need to be able to be poised and be able to handle what's coming next. That's a really good point. I like that. How do you fold new people into your team or your family? How do you um, make things feel inclusive um, and, and build, like, that family or team um, culture. We do lots of celebrations, lots of recognition, you know, a lot of young people. The baby boomers aren't interested in having their name plastered on the wall or something, but uh, most millennials want recognition. They want to feel like they belong, so you've got to do welcome parties, welcome banners, meet and greets, um, those sort of things to make them feel welcome. And one of the things that we do too for new grads that's happening today in the ICU is the clinical lead works their first couple of shifts with them so they're not stressed. So like today she had two new grads with them and they literally spent an hour and a half doing a head-to-toe assessment, which you can't do that when you're just out there working with your preceptor. Right. But they spent a good bit of non-stress time just doing it um, so they could start getting the pieces together. So um, so they're kind of introduced to a lot of the stuff uh, at a slower pace those first couple of shifts and that really helps 
because it takes a lot of the stress off of them from having to come out and work with somebody as phenomenal as Nisa <laughs> day, day one. Uh, so that's one of the things we do, but just things to make them feel inclusive and recognize a lot of recognition. And so, and you've got it down to where you customize it for their generation or their learning style or their working style. Correct. Um, I think we were talking about this. My biggest mistake uh, when I first stepped into management about 20 years ago was I'm not, I don't want to be micromanaged. I want you to give me the job, tell me what to do and get out of my way. And I'll let you know when I'm done or if I need anything. So I assumed that everyone wanted to be managed that way. So that's the way I managed people initially. And then I realized, I was like, gosh, these texts are awful or this person's terrible. And so I'm writing them up for not doing stuff and discipline them. And then I realized they're not a failure at their job. I'm a failure as a director because I'm trying to manage them like I want to be managed. But some people need to be micromanaged. Some people need clear direction and lots of follow-up. And when you give them what they need, they're very successful. So I can't manage people like I am. I have to, I have to look at them as an employee and see, well, I, this is how they need to be managed. And you can never say, well, I'm only going to hire highly motivated people that, that don't need to be micromanaged because you, you can't get that out of an interview. And and everybody's different. So you have to look at people and and – and like you said, customize. What do they need to be successful and try to manage them in that way? Wow, that's really good. That's really good. I remember hearing a leader talk about another person one time and saying, I know that when I sign something to him, I can go ahead and mark it off my to-do list because it's as good as mm-hmm. done. And I remember in that moment thinking, I want someone to say, like, talk about mm-hmm. me that way. Something like, right. that's a goal for me. Yeah. Um, and so and I'm f- that way, yeah. but not, not everybody is. is. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so in wrapping up, I want to talk about a few passions that you have that I share, um, that things that we both love. The first one is family presence at the bedside during a resuscitation. So how does that look in your unit? Why is it important in the pediatric population? It's important because of what we talked about earlier. You can't look at the child alone. You have to look at them in the context of, their, of the family unit because that's a part of who that child is. Having them important in uh, present in the resuscitation is important because it helps the family trust us. If they survive, they they trust you because you let them there. You weren't didn't have any secrets. Uh, you were honest with them. If they don't survive, all the research shows that it's important because they see you did everything. If they see someone doing CPR on their child with tears in their eyes, they think, oh my God, they care. I've had parents tell me I felt like angels were in there because y'all were doing everything, but people were crying. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the presence is important for that reason, and it helps the family see that we did everything. Mm -hmm. Not just that we were compassionate, but it helps them see that that there was a whole team doing everything they could possibly do um, to care for that child. Uh, if you're going to have them present at the bedside, and I believe that you should, 
the the most important thing is to have someone assigned to that family member so they can interpret to them what's going on and then if they get unruly you do have to remove them but there needs to be someone assigned to the family that's right that's right that's the key to making it successful versus traumatic the other thing that you are passionate about and that i love too is certification why is an advanced certification important for nurses for a couple of reasons one just the preparation for it uh, is a professional development piece because if you pay your money you're not going to not study so just you learn so much in that prep for the test and then you have to continue and that's to true learn. even if you're not successful even if you're not successful mm-hmm. and you know what it doesn't matter you know what the difference is in someone who takes a CEN or PCEN four times and passes or one time and passes nothing mm-hmm. you're still got your certification mm-hmm. so half the people who take certification for the first time fail it and so if you pass it the first time great I was successful um, when I took mine but you still should try and even if you don't pass it you learn so much mm-hmm. and you'll study again and, and, and you'll go be back successful. again yes. you'll go back again I'll ever just give up but it's so important uh, but it helps you grow professionally. You learn so much, so you're going to provide better care because mm-hmm. of all that you've learned. Mm-hmm. And it shows it, pediatrics especially, but any type of nursing, when you get your RN, obtain your RN, and you take your position, to me, and this is what I tell all of my new hires, is a commitment to lifelong learning. Mm-hmm. So... Your certification is just a piece of that. It's a commitment to lifelong learning uh, and to your patients because you're saying, because medicine changes every day. I just told some new staff, new nurses last um, week in a conversation about nursing that everything I learned in nursing school, except for the basics, is now obsolete. Mm-hmm. Everything. So it changes, healthcare changes, and everything that we do changes. And so you have to stay on top of it uh, and, and, and continue to follow all those changes, and your certification helps you do that. That's right. And one of the big things that we're saying now is that using social media and things like podcasts are ways that we can close that divide between the research and the 10 or 17 years it takes to get it into practice. Correct. We can push it out through social media and through the internet now and collapse that time frame. Correct. Which means better care for our patients. But people have to be willing to do that extra step, which is dig in and study and learn and, and seek after that knowledge that is continuously coming. So Lisa, when new nurses start in our hospital, um, Rebecca does this a, a version of this um, pediatric early warning signs lecture for them. Mm-hmm. And I do a family presence at the bedside lecture for them. And she is generally slated right before me. So I would always show up an hour early so that I could hear her lecture. Mm-hmm. And after the fourth or fifth time, she looked at me and was like, seriously, are you here again? <laughs> but every single time that I listen to this, I learn at least one or two new things. And it was no different in recording this episode. I'm so impressed with all the different things that nurses have to keep in their minds. Uh, I always have been this Rolodex of information that you have at your fingertips when you're confronted with somebody in some sort of condition. Now that I know how much more you have to keep in your heads when you're dealing with a child, I'm just completely in awe. Uh, I think that this is one of our episodes that listeners would benefit from listening to more than once. Maybe we should benefit from interviewing her more than once uh, down the line. That's true. I wonder, do you, as you've gone to hear her, 
deliver this presentation over and over again, have you, uh, is it the quality of care that's changing or is it just that there's so many things to think about that she has this wealth of examples to throw out on the table when she's talking about these things? Um, it's just that, as she was kind of saying, there's so many things that are different in an assessment of an adult versus an assessment of a kid mm-hmm. that, uh, and they can change so, so rapidly that it's really, um, the care that you give is just a, a little bit different. And having that knowledge base, having that information in my head, because I only do take care of kids intermittently, mm-hmm. uh, it makes my care better, my assessment better. Well, it was fascinating. I think mothers out there would probably be very interested in hearing this, anyone with young kids. Sure. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, folks, if you liked what you heard, as usual, here's where we give the little spiel about our social media. Please bear with us. We have to do it. It's part of the podcast handbook. Please That's come right. and check us out at the keywordpodcast.com, uh, our website where not only do we have a lot of information about our episodes um, and where you can find links to download episodes, we are also uh, hosting a new blog that will have transcripts of each of our episodes, as well as extended bibliographies and even side stories. And there'll be places there for you to comment, which we hope you will do. So come and find us and pass this along to a colleague who uh, feels uncomfortable with kids or who loves to take care of kids. I think that's everything, right? That's it. Excellent. I will talk to you soon, Nisa. And for all of our listeners out there, peace out. Bye. Bye.